today, we're, we're doing a two-week mini-service, or mini-series, called God's Plan in Our Lives. And we're going to talk together about just what God's plan for our life is. Now, it's not going to be super detailed. It's not going to be dialed in, and it's not going to cover where you should go to lunch, and what you should have, and what kind of shirt you should wear, and things like that. But what we are going to do is, is look at two passages in Exodus, today and next week, where God is first going to lay out to his people, Israel, and also to us, what he really wants for us, the life that he really wants us to have. That's plan A. Next week, we're going to look at what happens when we mess it up, when we say no thanks, when God has to go to plan B. And we're going to see what God's plan B looks like. Because I suspect there's at least one or two of us that may be on to plan B by now in our lives. And so that'll be something that uh, we'll be able to hear the wisdom of the scriptures about. But I've been thinking a lot about plans because this is, I, you know, I'm now in my second month as part of things here at, at Living Spring, but I'm still in the phase of, so what are you doing here as I, as I talk with folks? And we're still figuring that out. I mean, I have some specific responsibilities, but basically, you know, I'm working with John and the other people on the staff and getting to know all of you and trying to figure out you know, exactly how I'm going to be helpful to the life of this church. There's so many cool things going on. It's, it's hard to know where to jump in even sometimes. I'm here to help good things happen rather than solve problems, which is a rather nice place to be in. And I'm really excited about that. But the other reason why we don't have a, a rigid plan is, you know, have you ever been in a really rigid plan that the circumstance shift? You know, you're working really hard, you're, you're, you're doing everything that's written out, and then you get to the point you realize, well, wait a minute, the circumstances is not quite the way we draw it, drew it out. And so in my own role right now, we're kind of holding some of that kind of easy as we're figuring that out. Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, it's Exodus chapter 19. The Lord is going to kind of spell out to his people and to us what his basic plan is for us. And you're going to find that it is amazingly surprising in what the Lord brings to this. That it's actually not going to be all that detailed, but there's going to be another element that may really surprise you at how invested God is in, and the way that God is invested in this plan. And what we're actually going to see in Exodus 19 is it's the end of one plan and it's the beginning of another another one that we as God's people are still living out and we're still carrying out. So if you want to follow along, it's Exodus 19. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Genesis is before it. Um, Leviticus is just after it, if you want to follow along. I'm not going to have the text up on the PowerPoint like this. Um, I'm at this point, my PowerPoint kung fu is still weak. And... um, I don't like doing stuff I'm bad at, and I don't want to give you a bad PowerPoint. So you'll discover that along the way. Stuff I'm not good at, I'm not, I'm not down for. So don't ask me to play ping pong, okay? I'm not, I'm not good at playing ping pong. If you want to snark about pop culture, if you want to eat burritos, if you want to break down episodes of Gilmore Girls, if, if you want to know... Um, If you want to know why Carmelita Jeter didn't win the 100 meters last night, it was really her second, third, and fourth steps of the race, why she didn't win last night. We can talk about that, but just don't come to me for how to do PowerPoints yet. 
Next week I might be there, but we're not there today. And in reality, um, you're going to experience the scriptures in the way that most people have for most times. Because most believers over time have listened, you know? And so if you've got a Bible, follow along. Otherwise, just listen. So let's listen to what, what God is saying. And let's see what his plan is here. Okay, so starting at verse 19, or chapter 19, the first couple of verses, it says this. In the third month after Israel left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. Now, after they'd set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Now, I know this is the Bible, and the Bible's supposed to bless us, but let's just be honest with each other here for a minute. This is not the most exciting start to the story. Um, now, some of you are probably geography fans. I'm kind of that guy. I like reading maps. I'm the guy that when you're traveling wants to read the plaques and that kind of stuff. So this kind of stuff interests me, but it's not intrinsically interesting. So why is it there? I mean, the Bible doesn't waste space. If you spend time with the Bible, you'll discover it is, there's no wasted words. It, it's all amazingly concise. So, so why, why does Exodus waste a couple, seemingly waste a couple of lines here? Well, I, I think part of this is getting used to the way that Exodus wants to talk to us. If you've had a chance to read Exodus or hear it a lot, you'll notice that every time just before God appears or just before God speaks, where God is going to reveal himself in a new and amazing way, the story always slows down and gives us time and place to where it's happening. It tells us how many days before something's happened, um, and it tells us, a light show. That's kind of cool. Um, and it, it tells us how many days that something's happened, and it tells us where it's happening. The reason for this, it, and this is characteristic of the way that Exodus wants to talk to us, is, is what Exodus is doing is it's telling us that the thing that you're about to read and hear, it really happened. It's a historical event. See, in, in most ancient literature, the Bible's ancient, you know, we're talking about events that took place over 3,000 years ago. In most ancient stories, when people meet with their gods, it takes place in dreams, it takes place in myths, it takes place um, in visions, um, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's a parable, and the author of Exodus is trying to tell us here, this really happened. And so that's why the story slows down to give us those details. So being a good reader of the Bible, is, is, that's, that's part of doing it, is learning how Exodus wants to talk to us. You know, you guys, I've, I've, I've sat with you, and as, as Pastor John has preached the last couple of weeks, and this is a group. You guys know how to listen to Pastor John. You know he's going to be funny. You know he's going to talk to you about stuff in ways that, wow, I never thought of it that way, and I wouldn't have said it that way, but he did, but that's kind of cool. And you, you know that that's how he rolls. You know how that goes because you know that that's how he wants to talk to you. Well, Exodus has a particular way it wants to talk to us, and this is one of the ways it does it. So, and maybe down the road, that's probably going to be one of the things that I'll be doing here is helping people figure out how the Bible wants to talk to us. That's, I've done that quite a bit over the years, and I'll look forward for opportunities to do that. So, what it's told us is that, look, uh, what you're about to hear next really happened. It happened in a real place. It happened in a real time. But what happened was absolutely amazing. So in the next verse, it goes on and sets up the actual episode. It says, Then Moses went up to God 
And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, now I'm going to stop at that comma. I mean, the sentence goes on, but I'm going to stop there because there's something else that's really cool that I want to point out to you. I mentioned before that this is the end of one story and the beginning of another. And that comma where I paused is the end of the whole first episode of the book of Exodus. It's the end of Israel crying out to the Lord, the Lord hearing their cries, and the Lord appearing to Moses and calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to this place. It's a lot for a comma to carry, so let me, let me explain why that's the case um, and why I'm saying we need to pause here. You, you guys might remember the story. So Israel, they, they're a small family. They move to Egypt. They become, a big, they become a big people. And then there's a shift in the Egyptian government, and suddenly the Israelites are not welcome. And the Pharaoh, the kings of Egypt, they enslave the Israelites, God's people. And they're in a horrible situation. And it's hundreds of years since they've gone to Egypt. And their connection with the Lord is something out of their distant past. But yet, out of that distant connection, Israel cries out to the Lord in their slavery. And the Lord hears that. Now, to save them from the Egyptians, the Lord calls this guy Moses, who at the time is working as, he's an Israelite who had grown up in Egypt, But at the time, he's working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, way out in Midian, which is in the middle of nowhere. And neither of those things, living in Midian, working as a shepherd, or working for his father-in-law, none of those things were very prestigious. And Moses is kind of stuck. And the Lord tells Moses, I've heard my people's cry. I've seen their suffering. I'm going to save them. But you, Moses, are going to be my main representative. You're going to be my spokesperson. You're the guy I'm going to use. And Moses is not having it for two reasons. One is, is what the Lord is calling Moses to do, Moses had already failed at. He had tried to save Israelites when he was a young man. He had tried to lead the Israelites, if you know the story. Didn't go too well. And all it ended up was him being a fugitive from justice in Egypt. You know, he was on the Egyptian post office walls and all that kind of stuff. And that's how he ended up working as a shepherd for his father-in-law in Midian. So what the first thing the Lord is calling him to do is he's calling him to do something that Moses had failed at before. Now, you seem like a very accomplished group, so you probably haven't had much experience with failure. But you probably know people that have. And you can talk to him about this. But my experience, one of the hardest things in life to do is to go back and do something you failed at. To go back to a place where you failed and do it again. And that's what God's calling Moses to do. So it makes a certain amount of sense that Moses would be a little reluctant here. And also, the Lord is just some God from the past. Hundreds of years. And honestly, if the Lord was so powerful and so awesome, why are his people slaves right now? And so Moses has some doubts not only about himself, but about the Lord as well. And so if you remember the story, Moses is not all that anxious. And the Lord says, no, no, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to strike the Egyptians. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to take the people out of Egypt. I'm going to save them in an amazing way. And just so you know this is going to happen, Moses, I'm going to be with you. Moses is like, all right, well, you haven't been with us much for 400 years, so let's see how that goes. And then the other part is, is that Moses asks the Lord for a sign. You know, well, how how will I know that you really sent me? And the Lord says, well, here's the sign. 
he says, when you and the Israelites worship me on this mountain, then you'll know that I sent you. Now, think about that for a minute. That's not a very visible sign, is it? That's not a lot to hold on to along the way. Um, I, I, I taught college for a while, and um, the way we used to talk about this with my students is, is that, you know, I taught at APU, it's a Christian college, so um, the students often prayed before they went there. You know, Lord, is APU the school for me? Should I go here? And do I know that it was the right place? Because I sense, Lord, you want me to have a great education, have a great experience, come out of here, get a great job, meet some awesome, extraordinarily attractive person that I'm going to marry, and then I'm going to move on with my life. But Lord, I'm choosing between a number of different places, so how do I know that APU is the place that you sent me? And in a sense, the Lord's answer would be, how do you know that this was the right place for you? Well, when you've graduated, and you're married, and you have that amazing job, and you're transformed by the four to, in most cases, five years that you spent here, then you'll know that I sent you. And that was the deal that the Lord had made with Moses. When it all works out, then you'll know that I sent you. So the next time you're reading through... Exodus, and you're thinking, Moses, why don't you get this? Remember, we're at the end of the story. We know how it works out. It wasn't that easy for Moses along the way. So what Exodus does here is it tells us in just two sentences that it's all happened. Here's why I paused. It says, in the Lord, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said. If you're a careful reader of Exodus, you'll recognize that those two sentences are exactly the same two sentences that kicked off the burning bush story when God first called Moses. And so what the, what the book of Exodus is doing here in just a couple of words is it's telling us that whole first episode, it's done. And we're starting over again. Just as God started this amazing story at the burning bush, that God is about to start a new amazing story. That first episode's over and we're time, it's time for a new plan. And that's not all that comfortable either. Have you ever been there where you've worked the plan and then you get to the end of the plan? You know, you're reading down through the sheet and then you flip it over and there's just blank pages next. Most of us don't like that, you know. We like the parts on the map that have the lines, not the blank parts on the edge. You know, we like the plan where, okay, I'm, I've done F, now what's... Wait a second. G, (laughs) what's next here? You know, I've done D, E, F, what's G? This is G. This is what's next. So here's what the Lord says. And just to show what a big deal this is, the Lord lapses into poetry. When the Lord actually begins to speak here, he's not using his regular voice. He's actually speaking in poetry. I'll show show you what I mean in just a minute. The Lord says, this is what you're to say. To, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Um, that's, Egypt, that's Israelite poetry. That's Hebrew poetry. Now, we, we lose a little bit of it in English. But did you notice the way that the first line and the second line were kind of saying the same thing twice? Let me, let me repeat it again. It says, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob 
and what you're to tell to the people of Israel. So Jacob and Israel, same thing. Saying and telling, same thing. And you'll notice the Bible does that a lot, right? That's not bad writing. That, to the Hebrew mind, is poetry. To them, that sounds beautiful. And the key thing to get here is that in our poetry, the one we're most used to, things rhyme, right? You are my fire, my one desire, or, or something like that is, is poetry that we're used to, where the, the last sound of the line rhymes with the previous one. In Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme sounds as much as they rhyme ideas. And so you kind of repeat what it says in the first line in the second line. So that's what's happening here. So, you know, the Lord could have just said, hey, look, Moses, this is what I want you to say to him. But the Lord is already, and we're going to see even more so here, he's already kind of emotionally wound up so that normal ways of talking are not enough. The Lord needs to resort to poetry to really express what he wants to say. And so instead of just telling him, say this to the Israelites, he says in a way that to the original hearers it would have sounded beautiful, um, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. And then he goes on to the meat of what it is. You saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. So that's the next two-line combination. You saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Now, if you're familiar with Exodus, you know what he did to Egypt, and it's a lot. Mostly what the Lord did, if you, if you read the story of the plagues, you know, where God did all the frogs and gnats and thunder and lightning and all that kind of stuff, it was the Lord pretty systematically showing that he's in charge. He's the boss. He's powerful. Not Pharaoh, who was both a god and a king, the Lord is God and king. And not the gods of Egypt who are in charge of the, the seasons and the physical and, and um, weather patterns and things like that. The Lord's in charge of those. And not even the sea itself, which in the ancient world was the ultimate uncontrollable thing. That when God wanted to save his people, he made the Red Sea stand up like walls. And the Israelites walked through on dry ground. The, Isra- the Egyptians got stuck in the mud. And the Lord was able to save his people through the sea. So when he says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, the Lord is basically saying, you know I can do whatever I want, right? I have power literally to do anything that I want to do. And that's a little threatening, I think. I would feel a little threatened when you're near someone who's particularly powerful. I would feel a little nervous about that. So it makes sense that the Lord couples that, pairs that with this other phrase, how I carried you on eagle's wings. Um, that one's a little harder for us to get a hold of. And, and I think what he's doing is he's trying to get them to imagine the most amazing thing that they could possibly imagine. Now, because of our technology, we almost live with kind of a amazement deficit. Our homes are filled with amazing things. I mean, I woke up this morning and there was coffee ready for me because this simple robot machine made it while I was sleeping. I mean, that's, that's really kind of amazing. Um, I, I got an iPhone last summer, 2011. I boldly jumped into 2007 and got an iPhone. 
And, and since that point, I, I feel like I've discovered fire. I mean, it's just amazing the kinds of stuff that we can do with technology. We want to go somewhere. We can jump on a plane. I'm going to, our son's getting married in two weeks. We're going to go to Seattle. We, we're going to get on a plane and get there in a couple hours. That's extraordinary. I'm going to look down on California from 30,000 feet. We deal with a lot of amazement. But in their world, before technology, being able to fly was probably the most amazing thing that you could think about. And, you know, eagles are big. They're big, big birds. Probably the biggest bird that you would see. In fact, the, the word that's translated eagle here could mean buzzard or like condor or something like that. Although eagle sounds a lot nicer, I think. Um, so we'll stick with eagle. But... It basically means big bird in Hebrew, so it's any of the big birds. Um, but the really big birds will carry their chicks on their backs between their wings. And so imagine you live in their world, and the coolest thing that you could possibly imagine is imagine what it would be like to fly, to be like that chick flying on its mom's shoulders or its dad's shoulders. When he says, I carried you on eagle's wings, the Lord is saying, I, I've done the coolest, best, most amazing thing that you possibly could imagine. And, and think of the list, you know? He heard their cries. He got Moses to lead the people out. He got Pharaoh to change his mind. The most powerful man in the world, the Lord got Pharaoh to change his mind. The seasons, the weather, the very structure of the world, the Lord showed the Israelites that he was in charge of that that he saved them from the most powerful army on the earth and then dragged them, through the, dragged them through the sea to get them to safety. The Lord had done all kinds of amazing things for them. Since they'd gotten to the other side of the sea, he had fed them with manna. Manna means, what's that in Hebrew? Literally, mana means, what's that? Because they'd never seen it before. He fed them with, what's that? He gave them water out of nowhere. He protected them from the Amalekites. He had done all kinds of extraordinary things. So carrying them on eagle's wings is a great phrase to do that. But the Lord is afraid, I think, at this point, that the Israelites might mistaken, mistake what he's really after and might misunderstand that it really wasn't about the, the plagues. It really wasn't about the sea. It really isn't about the manna. They might mistake what the Lord is really up to. It's to the point that the Lord actually interrupts himself and blurts out what he's really about. I, I mentioned that the first couple of verses here are poetic. So you have, again, the line, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob, and then the line, and tell the people of Israel. That's, those two lines go together. And then you have the next two lines. You've seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. So those are the next two lines. Those go together. Now, what we would expect next is another two-line combination of things. But you don't. Suddenly, the poetry stops, and the Lord just blurts out what he's really after. I said all that to say this. You know, it's like the person who has carefully prepared notes, and they just set their notes aside and speak from their heart. And that's what the Lord's doing here. He sets aside the poetry. He sets aside his notes. He sets aside them remembering all the amazing things that he's done and says, this is why I really did this. He says, I did this and I brought you to myself. 
what the Lord is telling the Israelites and what he's telling us today as well is that what he really wants is not for us to be impressed by what he did with the plagues or what he did with the sea or what he does in the wilderness. That what the Lord really wants, and he did all of that to bring us to him. That he wants us to know him and to be known by him. That he did all of that to establish a relationship with us. Now, this is an extraordinary thing. I mean, in the ancient world, you didn't deal with your gods directly. You dealt with them through other little gods and and priests and things like that. And this is the highest, most powerful God, the only God the Lord has established now, telling each and every single Israelite and telling each and every single one of us that what the Lord really wants is us. That what he really wants is to us to connect with him. He wants to know us and be known by us. He wants to love us and be loved by us. That he did all of that to bring Israel to himself. That he's done all of that, including the gift of his son. You know, in the New Testament, God stops killing Egyptians to save people and starts killing his own son. He did all of that to bring us to himself. That's what he's up to. And it's so important to the Lord and it's so emotionally fraught to him that he actually interrupts himself to do that. He interrupts the poetry of the passage. He interrupts what he was about to say and he finally can't get to it so he just blurts out to the conclusion. I did all of that to bring you to myself. And do you realize here, maybe you're not comfortable thinking in these terms but I've, I've lived with this for a while so I'm okay with it. Trust me on this one for a minute. Do do you realize how emotionally vulnerable God is being at this point? That what the Lord is really doing in this conversation is what the kids call the DTR conversation, defining the relationship. You know, we've been hanging out for a while. We've kind of been seeing each other. Now, where is this going? I, I think we both kind of like each other, but do we like each other the same amount? Do we like each other in the same way? And the Lord is essentially doing that. And you notice, he's going first. He's going first. Mostly what we've heard from the Israelites since they've gotten out of Egypt is complaints. And the Lord is so anxious to tell Israel that he loves them, that he wants them to be his people, that he interrupts himself and just blurts it out. I did all this to bring you to me. And the Lord is, is, is actually being extraordinarily emotionally vulnerable at this point with the Israelites. A, a lot of you have had the privilege of being married. And so you probably had this conversation at one time, you know, where you had the defining the relationship conversation. And I don't know, did you go first? Were you the one that went first? Or did it just seem obvious and so you didn't have to go first? Or... I don't know, that, that's the way it kind of was with me. It was pretty easy. Wendy was just so obviously enamored with me that there was just, it was easy. <laughs> Which is not true. Um, I was just so full of myself, I just assumed that was going to be the right answer. Um, but in any case, that's, that's hard. Any, any, and, and if it's not a, a male-female relationship, just anytime you're the next one to say, to go first, to to take a relationship to the new level. You you know how hard that is, right? And yet the Lord is is doing this here. And 
I think we get a sense of just how not easy this was for the Lord by the way that he continues to interrupt himself. There's another time he'll interrupt himself that I'll point out to you in a minute. But he's saying, thump the Egyptians, part the sea, do all kinds of amazing stuff. That's all great, but here's what I really want. I want you. I want you to be my people so that I can be your God. And so he says this. He says, here's how it's got to be. Because he's God and we're people, so there's, there's something there's a part that I have and a part that you have. The Lord's already kind of established that he can pull off his part. So he's saying to the Israelites and to us, here's what our part is. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So obey me, keep my covenant. We were made as people to listen to God, to hear him. We were designed to do that. It's not an imposition on us. You know, if you ask a dog that's been bred to shepherd sheep and you ask him to go chase sheep, he's not annoyed that you asked him to do that job, right? I mean, that's what he was made to do. If you offer a piece of string to a cat, they're not going to say, hey, why are you bothering me? It's like, I'm a cat. This is what I do. As human beings... We were created to know and obey and listen to God. That's what we were meant for. It's what we were made for. The Olympics are happening right now. God also makes us to do other things. He, he gifts people with amazing musical gifts, and we've been blessed by this this morning. He helps some people run fast and some people jump high, and we're celebrating some of those gifts right now. But, and some of us have some of those, some of us have others, but all of us as human beings, we were created to know God. And the way that we know God and experience him is that we listen to him and we live out the life that he has for us. That's what he means by obey our covenant. So the Lord is just saying, look, I'm not adding a a big thing to you. I'm just asking you to be and do what I made you to do. And if you guys do that, then you will be, and and the the Hebrew language of the sentence is, in in English they kind of clear it up, but if you're a Hebrew reader, this sentence is hard to read. It's kind of jumbled up. In fact, there's some discussion. Did the copying get messed up or something? But really what it is, is the Lord is, I think, losing it a little bit again. And so he's, it's a sign of how emotionally engaged the Lord is that his grammar is kind of breaking down a little bit. And so the phrase that you'll be my treasured possession, the word treasured possession is there. You'll be my is, is, is kind of jumbled up and it's hard to get. And The only thing I can think is the Lord is again expressing from the depths of his heart, this is what I want for you, that you will be my treasured possession. And I think the phrase treasured possession, not hard for us to get, right? You will be the most important thing to me. You among anything else. In fact, he says that. Look, he says the whole earth's mine. I can do whatever I want. And what I want, I want you to be my treasured possession. I want you to be my people. I want you guys. I did all of that to bring you to myself. And as your people who will keep this covenant and listen to me, live out the lives that I've created to you do, together we're going to do something amazing. He gives them a vision for what this relationship's going to be like. It's like, all right, that's cool. I'm a treasured possession. I'm your person. What do you mean by that? Well, he he gives them two other pictures of what they're supposed to to do. And, and these are pictures that are a little more accessible to them than they are to us, so we'll have to break these down a little bit. But he says, I want you to be 
a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, the word priest is one that we don't access very well. Like Nate and I were talking on the break between services. He says, you know, in churches like ours, we don't have priests. You know, there's not somebody dressed up. We don't do that sort of thing like some of the other Christian expressions do. Um, But the reason we don't is we think we're holding on to what this passage is talking about. Now, now think about this. What's a priest do? A, A priest is like a mediator. You know, so God's over here, people are over here, the priest kind of stands in between, tries to bring God into the people's presence, to bring the people into God's presence. So by being a kingdom of priests, the reason none of us are called priest whatever is that we're holding on to the idea that God has called all of us to be priests. And he called all of Israel to be priests. You know, Israel would have priests that would help the people worship, but at the end of the day, what Israel's job was And what our job as the people of Living Spring, as the people who are followers of Jesus in this world right now, our job is to be like priests to the rest of the world. That it's our job to bring the rest of the world into God's presence and to bring God into the presence of the rest of the people. That this idea that we're valued, that we're chosen, that God has his deep emotion set on us is not the end. It's in order to enable us to be that kingdom of priests, to be a people who bring people into God's presence. The way we do that is the second phrase, where it talks us about being a holy nation. Again, holy is a word that has all kinds of weird connotations for us. Some of them positive, some of us not, not so much. Um, you know, oftentimes you think of the word holy as, as somebody wagging a finger at somebody or something like that. But I'd like you to switch that up for another one and think beautiful. Because that's what he's really describing here. Is that if Israel will live in the way that God has called them to and made them to live, if we, the people of Living Spring, will live in the way that God has called us to and enabled us to and empowered us to, to truly live out in the power of what it means to be a treasured possession, to be one of God's people, then we will live beautiful lives, that people will look at the way that we handle our lives, the way we handle one another, the way that we live our lives out on a daily basis, and they will see that we are really different from the people around us. And that's what he means by being a holy nation, that you will be visibly different from the people around us. But we don't wear uniforms, you know? We, what makes us different from the people around us is not that we wear uniforms or we do particular things with our hair or anything like that, it's the quality of our lives. It's the way we live our lives. It's the way we treat one another. It's the way we bless one another. It's the way we honor one another. It's the way we put others' interests ahead of our own. That's what makes us a holy nation. That's what makes us different and stand out before everyone else. And that is what God's plan is for each of us. To know that God did all of this to bring us to himself. That the Lord could do whatever he wants, but he wants us to be his treasured possession. That if we'll just listen to his voice, if we'll just obey him and keep his covenant, the Lord will empower us and enable us to be who we were created to be, which is to 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 bring people to him, to be a kingdom of priests, and to live lives of such great beauty that 
the people around us will demand, and you see this repeatedly throughout the prophets, they'll demand to know something about our God because there's got to be something about us. There must, we must serve a great God if we can live these kinds of lives. You know, again, friends, not all of us are gifted in all kinds of ways. Um, some people can create beauty with art. Some people can create beauty with music. Some people can create beauty with words. But what God has called all of us to do and wants to enable all of us to do is to create beauty with our lives, to create beauty and attractiveness so that the people around us will just say, these people must have an awesome God in the way that we live. The thing that holds this up, though, is we still got to say yes. The Lord wants to do all of this with us. He wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people. He wants to lavish this great amount of love and affection on us. And you know what? He went first. He said it first. And what's left to complete this circle, what's left to fill this out, what's left to make this happen is for us to say yes. Now, I don't know. For some of you, this may be the first time you're thinking about saying yes to Jesus. For some of you, this may be something that, you're again, you're doing down the road. Saying yes to Jesus is not a one-time thing. It's something we do over and over and over again. And because God's always calling us to some new way to be a kingdom of priests, some new way to be a holy nation, some new level of understanding what it really means to be his treasured possession, what it really means to understand that God did all of this to bring us to himself. So God has gone first. The question is going to be, are we going to say yes? Yes.